0: Welcome to today's episode of The District, a podcast by The Spectator World about politics and culture. I'm your host, Amber Athey. I'm the Washington editor for The Spectator, and I'm thrilled to be joined by author Michael Walsh, who has just released a new book full of essays about the dreaded Great Reset. And I'd love to start with you telling us a little bit about what the motivation was for Releasing this book, and also for those who are unfamiliar, what exactly is the Great Rest Reset, and why should we be against it?
1: Okay, well, let's start with the first question because I think that's interesting for, for people who don't know about publishing or the movie business or any of the things that I work in. At this point, journalism is what's you know used to be what happened yesterday. Now it's what happened two seconds ago, and. You know, five minutes from now it'll be. Look at what Twitter just said. In fact, it's, it, we've gotten that far. Uh, but in order to do something that that lasts and has some lingering value that's not of the moment, in book publishing and in movie business, you write a book, and it gets accepted for publication, and then it will be at least a year before that book comes out. So the conception of it takes place at least a year before that. So what you're always reading when you read a book by any author. Is something that he or she started working on almost two years before it hits your eyeballs. And that's a very long span of time right now for a lot of people, especially younger people. But I think it adds a solidity to the project and it adds to the quality of the project. So when we started this book about the Great Reset, and it's called Against the Great Reset for reasons we will soon learn, I asked every one of these very well known writers. We have 18 essays by 17 different Writers, I wrote the introduction, that counts as one, and I wrote a piece as well. I asked each one of them, don't write for today, write for two years from now. So what can we say about this that will still be resonant two years from now? So do not write about things that are topical right this second. Write for the long view. Take the long view. And that's what we did. Now, what's it about? The Great Reset is something that's been formalized and proposed, unofficially in a sense, but it's very influential, by the World Economic Forum based in Switzerland. It's based in Geneva. Once a year they have a big big gathering of the oligarchy, and generally in Davos, which is a little teeny village at the top of one of the Swiss Alps. And they all gather to talk about things like climate change, uh, sustainability, and green energy, and anything that they actually themselves would never do. So what do they want from us? Well, they wanted and they want to use COVID as the pretext, as a beta test, for having locked us down in our homes under house arrest unconstitutionally and against all norms of both medical science and the law in order to see if we would be good sheep and go willingly into our pens. And we did. So now that they've done this, they're crowing about it and they are looking at it as the model how to go forward with controlling the world's population so people will stop being so inconvenient and allow these very, very wealthy people, including Klaus Schwab, who's the head of it, King Charles III of Great Britain, other oligarchs, Bill Gates, etc., to allow them to live the lifestyle they want at your expense. That's the short version of it. Many people continue to say, I find this stunning, that it's a some kind of conspiracy theory. Well, it's not. It's on their very own website. So if you doubt me, go look up the Great Reset at the World Economic Forum's website, and you will see their plans for you in all their glory.
0: Now, How long do you think these individuals have been planning the so-called Great Reset? And was it just a happy coincidence for them that the pandemic occurred when it did to give them the ability to test out their ideas?
1: Well, I don't know about coincidence. Again, I don't I, I don't want to say it's a conspiracy, but it might have been a happy conspiracy. In fact, it was a happy uh, pretext because so happy, in fact, that Schwab and a co-writer of his wrote a book called COVID-19, colon, The Great Reset. And this came out in early in the in these lockdowns and pandemics so they clearly had this on their mind for a while even if they did a last minute crash job on it this was not something that was a total surprise to them indeed they've been pitching something like this some kind of well we're going to have a a pandemic at some point and we're going to have to do this at some point and and that some point miraculously showed up conveniently in uh, january of 2020 and I even got a lockdown. I was in at my house in Ireland when it, when it happened. And so I was there for eight to ten months, as a matter of fact, uh, waiting to be able to travel freely. But they've proved their point now. And now we have 18 essays against it.
0: Now, some of these essays, what different topics do they cover and, and which ones did you find so indispensable when they came across your desk?
1: Well, I assigned them all, so I knew exactly what topics we were going to be covering. Uh, the book is divided into six sections of three essays apiece. So we have titles like the personal, the political, the economic, even something I call the ineffable, which is stuff that's not immediately quantifiable, arts, for example, or religion, things like that. It was very carefully assigned and laid out. I chose the writers. I asked, obviously, I asked them. Writers such as Michael Anton, Conrad Black, Roger Kimball, David Goldman. These are all names that will be very familiar to anyone on the center right. Many of them are quite, have had long distinguished careers. We have one woman, Janice Fiamengo from Canada, who's a, a real brilliant intellect and who is a former professor who's now retired. And she took on for example, the topic of feminism under the Great Reset. So we hope to have covered as many bases as we could, given that each essay is about 8,000 words long. Some One of them is 10,000. And, you know, you can only have a book that's so big. So this is 450 pages. And as I said at the beginning, it's meant to last. It's meant as a wake-up call to people who who haven't heard of this yet. I hope to harness the power of everyone's social media, and literary followings of all the writers in the group, and that we can spread this word widely. So you're being very helpful at The Spectator there, helping us with this.
0: Well, I certainly appreciate that. What was the, the moment that happened when, when you thought, I have to put this book together? Was it Klaus Schwab talking about this at the World Economic Forum, or was there some other specific event that just sparked that urge in you.
1: No, it wasn't so much that. I, I have founded a website about going on three years now, along with my co-founder, John O'Sullivan, who many of your listeners will will know his name, former speechwriter to Margaret Thatcher in Britain, uh, former editor-in-chief of National Review, et cetera. And we established a web- website, which is called thepipeline.org. So it's the hyphen pipeline like oil pipeline dot uh, we're up seven days a week 365 days or six depending on the leap year a year and each day we basically publish one major piece that's it we don't churn we don't ask readers for a lot of time but we will give you an essay by someone accomplished and important in all of the fields that we cover for you to chew on and hopefully share with other people so that's the pipeline.org and the book grew out of that because we are devoted to energy issues especially the the crazy notions of green energy which will never be possible in any economically viable form a net zero which is effectively a suicide cult since it proposes to do away with all carbon emissions and the people who are proposing to do away with all carbon emissions are oddly enough themselves carbon-based life forms so if you ever wanted a clearer proof of how literally crazy these people are they want to abolish themselves they definitely want the abolition of man to quote a famous book title but right but not right now as saint augustine said about chastity in, oh lord please make me chase but not right now so not right now they want you however to stop driving or drive an electric car, but then they'll control the electricity supply to that electric car. They want you to live in a high-rise because you can't take up too much space on the earth. After all, we're running out of space on the planet, allegedly. And mostly they want you to stop cattle farming. This is important to me as someone who lives in Ireland, because cows are flatulent and they create methane, and the world will come to an end if they don't stop farting. This is, I mock them because you can only mock them, because if you Take them too seriously. You you yourself will become a madman. So the pipeline goes after this every single day. We were amused to find out just the other day the Germans decided ha, to knock down a giant wind farm in order to expand a coal mine because suddenly they've realized that the wind farm is not going to keep them warm when it gets cold in Germany. I lived in Germany for 10 years. It gets very cold in Germany sometimes and they will not be happy campers when they freeze to death. But this is the, the level of insanity that we are looking at now has only increased since we started this book. So the short answer is it grew out of the pipeline. And we wanted to do a book and we found collaborators who helped us make this possible. And Adam Bellow at Post Hill Press, a great American editor, took it on. And so we've launched now. We're a, a week and two days old, three days old. Here we go.
0: I appreciate the shout out to Adam Bello. He is the editor for my upcoming book as well. So clearly he must have good taste. Well, he definitely Uh,
1: does. I would say that (laughs) this is no coincidence. This is a conspiracy of of talent here.
0: That's right. Uh, I I like that you talked about some of their goals with eliminating efficient and useful energy and, and wanting people to stop cattle farming. This is Sprung into something of an online meme where people say, "I won't live in the pod. I won't eat the bug." Uh, but this is really what they want people to do. How do they make this sound attractive to individuals? Is there a segment of the population out there that really craves this type of control that these leaders are offering?
1: Yes. Anybody who's still wearing a mask right now in public, they're them. That's who. Th- Luckily, these these lunatics and Karens and fascists are so crazy that they can't help but reveal themselves. So I still see people in the grocery store wearing masks. They have no function whatsoever, none, no medical function, no political, well, political function they have, no medical function, except to signify they're on board with the current thing, as the saying goes. They're leftists, and they believe in it, and it's their religion, and they'll they'll die for it, as long as you die first.
0: Is that a new phenomenon, or has there always been that segment of the population, because I think we sometimes romanticize, especially the American founding, and we think of Americans as being uniquely independent and autonomous. But I suspect that this has always been a strain in society of people who desire control.
1: Yeah, well, that's easily proven by just going back and looking at history. I'm in the middle of my second big book about warfare right now. The last one was a big bestseller in 2019 was called Last Stands, like Custer's Last Stand, right? Or the Last Stand of the uh, Persians at Gaugamela, or or whatever these battles were. I'm now doing a second book about that, which again starts with the Greeks and moves all the way up into, right up to 9-11. There's always people who want to control other people. That's just a normal human thing. It's, It's primarily a masculine thing. I would argue and do argue. And it's also primarily a feminine thing that you will go along with it. Men are much more rebellious and less conformist than women. And you'll notice that on the left, it's heavily female right now. It's heavily feminized. The idea that males are toxic is just insane, insane, because you need them. But the the feminist left is fully on board with the Great Reset I guess they'll eat bugs, although, you know, who doesn't really, who likes a girl who wants to eat bugs? Nobody. But the, I guess the Karens will eat bugs. Uh, they will follow. Something that makes me even less popular among feminists than I already am is something I like to say. I used to say it on Twitter, except I got banned two and a half years ago. Maybe my liberation day is at hand. Who knows? But I like to say men are Romans and women are Sabines, which is goes back to the early, early founding of Rome and a story by Livy takes too long to go into it here. But I think the fact that we've become a feminized country makes us more susceptible to domination. So there you have it, ladies. You can, you can write to me at Facebook and let me know what you think about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll probably take some heat, too, because I completely agree with you. oh you're in big
1: trouble now. Anne. Well,
0: yeah. it's a biological impulse, right? Because women, for self-preservation, tend to go along with the status quo because we don't have the physical strength to rebel, typically. So I think you're spot on. And this raises an important question, which is why do the leaders of the Great Reset want women in the workforce and not reproducing because the feminists argue that staying at home and raising children is the real oppression and that they can free themselves and become empowered by focusing on their career but it seems like based on your premise they have it backwards can you explain that a
1: little bit i think they do have backwards and i'll i'll point you and our listeners to the essay by janice fiamengo i just mentioned because she specifically writes about how bad feminism has been for women, what a poor bargain it turned out to be, which essentially is sexual access for men with, with, with basically, you know, n- no life after the man leaves you. And, and she's very eloquent on this. I would just make this point about reproduction, because that's so important. Rome fell not because it became degenerate, but because its women stopped having children. That's the honest truth. Yes, it also was weakened by Christianity. I think Gibbon is absolutely right about that in his famous chapters in uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. But what made Rome strong from the beginning, which is why they kidnapped the Sabine women, because they had no women of their own and they needed them. And once they did kidnap the Sabine women, the Sabine women fell in love with them and stayed with them. And when the Sabine men came back to get them back, the women said, no, thanks. We've got husbands and and fathers, and they're the fathers of our children. Get out of here. Uh, It's important that if women give up having children, then the society will collapse. It's that simple. And we're going through it right now. Let's see how it works out.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much, Michael Walsh, for talking about this book that you've compiled. This is, I think, Klaus Schwab's worst nightmare, pretty much. And it's available now wherever you get your books, whether that's Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Definitely pick it up. There's some great essays in here. And we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode of The District, uh, the Spectator World's podcast. And thank you again to our guest, Michael Walsh, for coming on with us.
1: Thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget
0: to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.